You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm Ankit Panda, editor-at-large at at The Diplomat and a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment, coming to you live from New York. Um, And I'm delighted today to be joined by The Diplomat's newest editor. Uh, Joining me is Sebastian Strangio. How are you, Sebastian? I'm very well, thanks, Ankit. Thanks for having me. Well, welcome to the podcast and uh, welcome to The Diplomat. Um, So some of our listeners may be uh, aware of your work, Sebastian, because I've actually been reading you for quite a while. Uh, You've had quite the career before The Diplomat. I was hoping uh, since this is your inaugural appearance on the podcast, uh, you could tell us a little bit about your time uh, in in Southeast Asia and earlier before you uh, found your way to The Diplomat. So um, tell us a little bit about yourself. So I got my beginning um, in Southeast Asia uh, as a journalist in Cambodia. I went there in 2008 and I spent eight years there reporting um, firstly for the first few years on Cambodian domestic politics at one of the local newspapers. And then I began traveling around the region more widely. So I started freelancing for for numerous publications, including The Diplomat, uh, and traveled um, mostly focusing on mainland Southeast Asia. But I did begin to expand into the maritime region um, as time went by as well. Um, And then I, uh, you know, I've just recently moved home to Australia uh, after more than a decade abroad. Um, and so I'm now sort of observing Southeast Asian affairs from here. Um, and I'm hoping that once travel reopens, that I'll be able to get back regularly to keep, um, tabs on what's happening. It's, it is a challenge to, um, you know, see what's going on from a distance. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very, you know, I find that, I find that myself too. It's just, uh, you really need to be able to meet people, especially in person, uh, virtual events, just don't cut it at some point. Having those yeah. conversations in person is really uh, crucial. But um, I do also want to draw attention uh, to our listeners uh, to your new book, um, a very timely book on a very timely subject that we've uh, discussed quite a bit on this podcast before. Uh, the book is called In the Dragon Shadow, Southeast Asia and the Chinese Century. Uh, I haven't yet read the book. I must apologize. But uh, Sebastian, can you summarize the core uh, arguments and themes for our listeners? Well, the book examines, you know, probably one of the most significant foreign policy questions of our time. Uh, You know, what does China's resurgence and return to great power status mean for the world? And of course, Southeast Asia occupies a very, you know, unique and and particularly fraught position in this story, given its proximity to China, its centuries of interaction um, with it. Um, And it's, you know, the the historically the the, the strong American security presence that that has been in the region since the end of the Second World War. Um, You know, a lot of strategists in Western countries are speaking now about the Indo-Pacific as a sort of unified strategic arena. And of course, there's no region that is more quintessentially Indo-Pacific than Southeast Asia. I mean, it it, it touches both of these oceans um, and sprawls between them. and so my book, uh, you know, I, I got interested in looking at this subject when I was in Cambodia, when I witnessed firsthand this, you know, this, you know, surging um, growth in Chinese investment, um, Chinese expatriates, um, you know, Belt and Road Initiative projects that were opening up isolated corners of the country and bridging um, Cambodia's rivers. Um, and I, be, you know, I began to look at this issue on my travels throughout the region. And, and so this book is sort of the culmination of my explorations into that question. Um, so I look at the impacts um, that, you know, China's investment is having on the ground. Um, I also look at the way that 
the nations of the region are responding to it and responding to the challenge posed by a resurgent China. And I look at how the domestic politics in each of these countries and centuries of interaction with China have conditioned their responses um, and the, or, or, or limited um, the options available to them in terms of mm -hmm. responding. Um, and then I sort of try and cast forward and ask what this all means for, you know, the, 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 the future of the Indo-Pacific or, you know, in, in the context of this escalating tension between China and the United States. So just to rewind a, a second, uh, you know, you referenced the the newly popular notion of the Indo-Pacific. Um, and there was some concern, um, I guess, around 2018 uh, when, uh, you know, Jim Mattis went to the Shangri-La Dialogue and professed that ASEAN centrality would not be uh, impinged on by this concept of the Indo-Pacific. How, how do, uh, especially, I guess, foreign policy elites in Southeast Asia, in your view, um, feel about this conceptualization of this vast region, I mean, frankly, just, um, you know, we're talking about, uh, depending on the definition of Indo-Pacific, all the way from San Diego to uh, Tanzania in many ways. How do uh, Southeast Asian elites feel about this uh, conceptual framing of, of Asia? Well, I think it's important to recognize that there were some elites in Southeast Asia and strategic thinkers who were bandying about this term, mm -hmm. um, you know, as far back as the middle of the last decade. Um, you know, is always just sort of an idea. And I think that it, it sort of took the United States um, and to a certain extent, Japan to sort of really, you know, make this idea into a, uh, you know, to popularize it in the, and mainstream it in the way that it has been over the past few years. Um, I think in general, um, the, the, the governments of the region welcome this strategy as a as a signal of American commitment to the region, or they 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 welcome America's increased attention towards Southeast Asia, um, but I think there's some concern that the Indo-Pacific is, you know, motivated overwhelmingly by you know the desire to contain China and and the framing of the Indo-Pacific as this free and open, um, you know, uh, characterized by free and open principles in counterpoise to the closed nature of China's authoritarian system, which I think is, um, you know, is, is, you know, a bit of a, you know, a concern, I suppose, for some nations in the region. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, uh, yeah, I think there is a sense that this, this strategy lacks specifics when it comes to Southeast Asia. Like there's been a lot of talk about um, focus on China and, um, but, you know, there hasn't been a lot to the strategy that sort of responds to Southeast Asian development needs or, you know, um, takes into account, I think, the, you know, the more complex and anguished position that the region occupies vis-a-vis -vis China. Um, I mean, of course, it's very early days. And this, you know, if we do see a changeover administ of administrations in the United States, we may see uh, a Biden administration taking a different perspective mm -hmm. or using the Indo-Pacific idea in a different way. Um, but I think it's, you know, there's the region at the moment is still sort of in a wait and see phase, um, as regards this new American strategy. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, I'm not, I'm not a Southeast Asia specialist by any means, but in my years sort of following the region, traveling there, uh, it just seems that so much of the orientation of specific countries is just deeply influenced by domestic political developments. I think a few of the starker examples in recent years, uh, certainly the Aquino Duterte transition in the Philippines, um, but also more recently the uh, Najib to Mahathir uh, 
change of government as well. I mean, you just saw mm. significant change in, I guess, opposite directions in both cases. But I'm just wondering, I mean, uh, in the course of your book, I mean, do you come down on attributing a weight to, let's say, domestic developments in these countries? Uh, I guess Cambodia is another good example uh, versus what China and the United States are extrinsically doing uh, in act in Southeast Asia actively, sort of Chinese efforts to lobby for um, investment in these countries, uh, which do you find has a greater explanatory weight for the general um, orientation of these countries towards the US and China? Well, I think that domestic politics is, you know, in many places is determinative. It it, it shapes and limits the, mm -hmm. uh, the choices um, open to these countries and how they respond both to China's inducements, but also the, you know, the increasing competition and rivalry between these two superpowers. Um, I think that, you know, each nation faces a similar challenge vis-a-vis -vis China, you know, how you can benefit economically from trade and investment without compromising your sovereignty or, or being absorbed into a Chinese orbit. Um, and I think, you know, each each country's met this challenge in in, in ways reflected, reflecting the the limits uh, and and um, also the, the um, the assets available to them. Um, and so I would say that, you know, that I would probably argue that domestic, uh, de you know, determinants are, you know, more important in some ways than, than, than either the China, China or the United States does, mm -hmm. um, you know, in terms of what projects, um, are agreed to, um, you know, in terms of the Belt and Road and, you know, how, these nations respond to the United States as well. I think there has been, you know, um, we, we constantly see again and again. I think the examples you cited are quite are quite opposite. Um, the Philippines under Duterte and, and Malaysia under Najib, both, um, you know, their engagements with China have both been driven overwhelmingly by what they need domestically. And, um, and the sort of uh, inability to stand up to China in a very robust way has also, mm -hmm. um, reflected you know the the pri uh, uh, the priorities that they've um they've chosen in their domestic politics and the need for chinese support to advance those projects one might also cite jacoey in in indonesia where you know he, he's pledged to you know this massive multi-billion dollar scheme of infrastructure building designed to sort of bind the indonesian islands together and and you know improve the lives of its quarter of a billion people um and you know he sees china as a practical um results oriented power that's able to you know fast track those sorts of projects so of course this is you know um this has impacted his stance on china on a whole range of issues um you know leaving aside the fact that he's he's a, he's a leader who doesn't have a lot of interest in foreign affairs mm -hmm. to begin with right I mean, you know, just to be just to oversimplify everything a little bit, since we're uh, on a podcast here, you know, if I guess uh, if we had to rank the countries of Southeast Asia based on, I guess, their proximity to China uh, on one hand um, being 10 and proximity to the U.S. being zero, um, where would you uh, put, I guess, um, the countries of the region? Which ones are closest to China and which ones are furthest? I think so. I would say that the countries that are probably the closest to China or the most, um, leaving aside the ranking for just a second, the countries that are historically have been the most accommodative of Chinese power, I think are the ones that dwell 
in the mainland parts of Southeast Asia, but do not share borders with China. So Thailand and Cambodia have been, um, you know, Cambodia at the moment is is, is probably the 10 your, or the nine in your scale. Um, but Thailand has also been, you know, historically, you know, yeah, quite accommodative to Chinese power and, and very much in favor of economic connections with China. But And the fact that it doesn't share a border has dampened that um, the concern that China's um, growing power has elicited from other powers. Whereas you see with Vietnam, you know, it's probably a country that's most proximate to China in cultural and historical terms. But that proximity has been so intense that it's produced this really fraught dialectic of, of resistance alongside emulation. And so you, you see probably, you know, the most complicated relationship with China and the region is, is, is also the country that's closest to it in terms of history and culture. Um, so I, to, to go back to the ranking, I think that you would probably place Cambodia at nine, Laos at around 8.5, the Thais probably around 6.5-ish, Myanmar around probably around the same. I think there's more fears in Myanmar, but the human rights situation has complicated relations with Western countries to such an extent that um, it you know, it is hard for Myanmar to maintain good relationships. And so it sort of had to lean on China or it feels that it has to lean on China um, for diplomatic support. I think Vietnam, I'd place bang in the middle at five. I think that the Vietnamese, you know, are very cautious about deepening their relationship with the United States beyond a certain point, given that there has historically been, um, you know, uh, that China looms on the northern border and that any time Vietnam has been perceived to be acting as a proxy for a, a you know, a, you know, a larger power, it is, it is elicited, you know, um, pretty swift rebukes from the Chinese. Um, so from there, I think, I mean, if we're just looking at the current administrations, I think you would probably have to place Duterte again at around 6.5. Um, Jokowi would probably be around six. Um, but of course, the Philippine, the Philippine security establishment would be more of a one or two, I think. Um, yeah. Given that you know the the, the weight of historical um, uh, connections to the United States, um, and Malaysia, I think, would probably be you know around a five and a half or six. Singapore, again, I think, bang in the middle at five. I think they've been incredibly astute at balancing um, between the two superpowers. Um, and very outspoken on the need for those powers to um, to sort of dampen their um, escalating rivalry. And who have I left out? Brunei. I mean, we didn't, no one really, we never talk that much about Brunei, <laughs> but I would say that's probably at around six, 6.5 as well. Um, did I leave anyone out? Uh, no, you mentioned Laos, Cambodia, Myanmar, Thailand. Uh, yeah, I think we're, uh, I think we're all set. Um, you know, you actually, uh, when you when you were describing Singapore's balancing efforts, uh, you kind of preempted my next question, which is this messaging. Um, uh, so first of all, you have messaging from the United States uh, in recent months that has been telling countries in Southeast Asia and elsewhere that Washington is not asking them to choose between the U.S. and China. Um, and then you get the counter complaint from Southeast Asian leaders and strategic elites in many cases that the region is being chosen to make um, or asked to make a choice and um, that rather they would have the United States and China control their differences. And uh, you just mm. covered this for the diplomats. So I wanted to ask you about this, um, this more specifically, but uh, Jokowi, Duterte both just, you know, used their speeches at the United Nations General Assembly this year, of course, all virtually 
to, um, again, reinforce this message. What is to be made of this? Why are Southeast Asian leaders um, trying to push back on this notion of great power competition so ardently? Well, I think that, you know, again, it comes down to Southeast Asia's position between the two of the powers. You know, this is a region that's economically enmeshed with China. I mean, China's the leading trade partner, I think, of eight of the 10 ASEAN nations. I haven't looked at the most recent statistics. Um, and is a prominent investor, an increasingly prominent investor in all of them. Um, it's also a nation that dwells very, you know, close to hand. And so it's a nation that has to be handled very carefully. Um, and I think there is a concern that this escalating US-China rivalry will, you know, it, even if it stops short of an open conflict, will put strains on um, all of the Southeast Asian nations um, that it could, you know, interrupt their their economic relationships with China, um, uh, and that it could, you know, put them in the position of having to make difficult choices, not necessarily one grand choice, but a lot of small and complex choices. Um, and both China and the United States are in a position, if they wanted to, to really hurt countries that don't do what they want. Um, and I think, you know, one of the challenges we've, you know, that these countries face is, you know, on the one hand, the U.S. has said, you know, we don't want you to choose. We, you know, but the way that they that a lot of American policymakers have framed um, rivalry with China, at least rhetorically, is as a sort of ideological choice that that there is, you know, this is a battle between democracy and freedom. And on the one hand, and authoritarianism on the other, you know, the free and open Indo-Pacific, you know, leans very heavily on this rhetoric about democratic principles. Um, even though once you get down to the domestic level, things look a lot less clear. Obviously, in the case of India, you know, um, for instance, of the Quad countries, you know, to say that India is like-minded on questions of liberal values, you know, is probably a bit of a stretch, at least under Narendra Modi. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think that the, these nations are, you know, the, the last Cold War was one in which they really did have to choose. Um, you know, it was not very easy to maintain to maintain neutrality in that conflict. Um, and for many of the nations of the region, it had existential stakes. Um, and I think that they're, you know, very cautious about being put into a position where they have to, you know, choose a side in an ideological struggle. Um, I don't think any of the nations see US-China competition overwhelmingly as an ideological struggle. I think um, they see it as a, you know, a rivalry between two large powers that are each self-absorbed and each concerned about their own global standing, and each of whom often overlooks or looks through the Southeast Asian region and treats it as a, you know, a front in this wider struggle. Um, and I think that, you know, it, it the Southeast Asian perspective tends to treat the United States and China more or less as equivalent units, as strategic units. And I think that 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 often puts the uh, the noses of American officials out of joint because there's an implied moral equivalence. But I think, you know, what they're really drawing is sort of a strategic parallel between these two large powers that that each want, you know, each struggling for primacy in, in at least in, in the Indo-Pacific region and potentially mm -hmm. um, further afield. Yeah, no, the, um, the metaphor you hear quite often in, uh, I guess, Singapore, in my experience, is, uh, you know, when the elephants fight, the ants underground get get trodden over and uh yes that i yeah. think very much captures that uh equivalency that you were describing yeah yeah um, but I you know i mean that's yeah but yeah, implicit implicit in your um 
in your description there of, uh, you know, both powers as self-absorbed, I mean, it is interesting that there is this both, uh, you know, skepticism and room for accommodation for both the United States and China uh, in, in Southeast Asia. Is that is that changing um, at a different rate today, uh, either based on the actions of the Trump administration or, of course, uh, China under Xi Jinping in recent years? Uh, which way is the wind blowing in your view? Well, it's hard to say. You know, we've got the American election coming up in about six weeks. And, you know, so much of the Trump administration's rhetoric toward China and, and, and almost daily escalations um, in terms of restricting Chinese companies and, and, and various sanctions, you know, seem to be motivated at least in part by, you know, domestic political considerations. Um, and so we'll have to wait and see, you know, if, if Joe Biden is elected, what position the United States takes on China. Now, I think the, the, you know, pre-Trump era of engagement is over. I don't think we're going to be going back to sort of the Obama era in terms of how the U.S. approaches China. I think a turner has a, a corner has been turned um, uh, in in views of China. But I do think we could see something a little bit more, more cohesive and level-headed. Um, you know, at least the potential is there for a form of competition that that sort of eschews these very stark ideological binaries and that know that engages southeast asian nations a little bit and, and other nations um uh as well uh you know more effectively um uh but you know will remain to be this remains to be seen i think that the chinese government has sort of you know taken off its cloak of self-effacement and you know it's it's behaving like a great power you know in some ways it's behaving in a very similar way to the way the United States behaved in the in the Western Hemisphere in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's it's trying to secure its interests and um, establish its hegemony over over its you know sensitive parts of its neighborhood. Um, it's doing so in a way you know that you know that 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 reflects the nature of the Chinese communist system and um, the rhetoric and the way that this is presented. You know, may reflect also the different sort of historical orientation of the Chinese state. Um, although I think that. No, um, well, that that can sometimes be overstated, um, but I think that it's it's behavior. I, I don't think that we're going to see a, a you know a, a serious um, you know forswearing of Chinese ambition. I think that you know um, th this new powerful, you know, both self confident and and brittle Chinese um, power is I think here to stay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think uh, I think that's right. Um, Sebastian, I am unfortunately uh, we're out of time, but I do want to welcome you to the podcast uh, and, of course, welcome you to The Diplomat. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. Great. Yeah, I really hope to uh, have you back on uh, to uh, discuss developments in Southeast Asia. For listeners, if you've been a subscriber to the podcast, but you haven't yet left us a review, we'd really appreciate if you could do that. It really helps get the word out about the show. And if you haven't yet subscribed, please do so. We'd, uh, we'd love for you to keep up with uh, future coverage on, on this podcast. Finally, before we close, a quick note from our sponsor. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. 
DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.